Tonight we're covering chapter 23 of Matthew. And let me show you a little bit of just some of the places we've been already uh, in our discussion tonight. We kind of hit chapter 23. But you can see that just in chapters 20 and 21 and 22, there's been a lot of activity. And of course, this is a crucial time because this is the end for Jesus. This is in the midst of the Passion Week. We're just a couple of days away from it all coming to a head. And the great climax that Matthew has been building for is going to cover uh, the rest of the chapters uh, through the end of the book. Before we start in Matthew 23, I'd like to actually just go back to Matthew 22 for a second. Because, as many of you know, there probably wasn't a break <laughs> the way we have. Certainly, uh, Matthew wasn't finishing a chapter or writing verses when he wrote this. But he was completing a thought. Remember that the Pharisees and the Sadducees have done a series of tests that we covered last week where they come to Jesus and try to trip him up in one way or another. And at the end, Jesus turns the tables a little bit on them and asks them a question that stumps them that they can't answer. The question was, whose son is the Christ? And he asks them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied, which was the customary answer because people kind of knew that he would be that. And then we pointed out that he said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, and I kind of highlighted that it's rare for us to find one of these examples where Jesus is actually commenting on what we had just covered in our subject on the origins of the Bible and an inspiration. Like Jesus actually makes it a point, at least as is written in Matthew, to say David was speaking by the Spirit when he calls him Lord. For it says, and then he quotes Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. If you want to try to understand the implications of that, go back and listen to last week. But he ends with, if David calls him Lord, how can then he be his son? No one could say a word. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And it's with the silencing of the Pharisees, with this question that he turns on them, that now we approach chapter 23 in context. So let's start talking about chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Jesus' point should ring clear a little bit to us first. He's saying, after he's done silencing the Pharisees, to his own disciples. They sit in a place of authority. Moses' seat is speaking, not of an actual seat, but of the idea that this is the place. Now, in some temple practices, they actually would have a chair that they would designate. But the idea is one of authority. So, Jesus seems to respect authority here again to the degree that they actually practice what it is they're saying. So he's saying that for these people, they have been set up in a place of leadership. So you must obey everything they tell you. Some commentators would say he's being ironic by that statement. But I actually think he might be kind of crafting the same type of ethos that Paul later gives us too, that says that we should respect those who are in authority. And I think that will become significant as we start to consider our role within government bodies as well. But the greater point he's trying to make is do not do what they do. 
because they don't practice what they preach. And they heap up these heavy loads on people and they don't lift a finger to help. Contrast that with Jesus. What was his statement about loads? Anybody remember? Yeah. If you remember, Jesus kind of gives his own much earlier. Jesus already stated, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A better translation maybe for my yoke is easy is my yoke is good. It's probably properly fit for you also. It's the things you need to know. I think that would make sense if he's the creator. He would know exactly what we need in that regard. So there should be kind of an echo here as people are reading this about the charge he's making at the Pharisees. Like your burden is heavy and you don't lift a finger to help. I think we could say that Jesus definitely goes beyond just lifting a finger, but he's saying that my burden is even different. So we should kind of keep in mind that as we are wrapping up, Matthew's starting to bring back to mind a lot of things that we've seen before in this culmination. He goes on. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have men call them rabbi. Charging them with a haughty pride that's come to them. Anyone know what a phylactery is? Yes. Small boxes containing scripture takes one for religious purposes. (laughs) (laughs) I knew that Randy would come in with a dictionary definition, so I thought I'd go a step further and give you a picture of it. That's a phylactery. It's actually a Greek word for what the Hebrew would call a tefillin. And you see the little box, it might be hard to see where you're at, but it would actually carry small inscriptions from certain verses in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Okay? And it was probably a literal reading of those passages that they should be carried around, that they actually had this practice. So probably Jesus is pointing out to some excessive use of them. You could always put them on your hands as well and wrap them with a belt or a tie. So... It's possible that there were just a lot of them in use on one person's body to kind of point out that I've got this thing to carry. There's actually kind of a play here a little bit when he's talking about their burden. Because, you know, part of it might be if you're walking around with all these things, you could be one of those religious types who are like, oh, I've got to wear these things all day long. Of course, they're a status symbol to you. But you have to point them out to other people disguised in a complaint, perhaps. Here you also see these tassels that they have that some of them were used as prayer beads. Some of them were actually fragrances that they would put on, so they would kind of, you know, count them or pray over them. And the longer those tassels were, it seemed like the more important all these prayers were, they had to remember. That's why your tassels were so long. Again, kind of a sense of this persecution or just this burden that you're carrying on behalf of the people. And he's pointing out that that leads to status. And that leads to pride. And that's a problem here. They love to have men call them rabbi. He's contrasting, by the way, something else we've seen in Matthew earlier. If you go back to Matthew 6, verses 1 through 18, you remember that Jesus sets up in the Sermon on the Mount an expectation for his disciples that they will fast, they will pray, they will give. But in the midst of that, they are to do so in secret, in all cases. And if there is a reward, it will be given to them by your Father who is in heaven, who sees what's done in secret and therefore will reward you. Not 
the rewards of men. In fact, it's just the opposite. He actually points out that if you do your good acts, if you do fast, pray, and give in front of others, you've already received your reward. You've already received people looking at you and saying, oh, you're awesome. And there is no reward for you. So there's that same contrast with his teaching before. His condemnation of this practice or his criticism of it comes after he's already laid out what the standard should be. All right? But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That theme. Over and over, Jesus seems to bring up. All right, so it's a good thing that nobody calls each other rabbi, right? We don't have that problem in the church, right? Like, we just kind of think that's not us. What about father, or teacher, or pastor, or reverend? Is Jesus saying that we shouldn't have any of those? What do you think? I think what he's getting at here is not necessarily that we shouldn't have those titles or those people who function in that particular capacity but looking to them as the be-all, end-all. Like, what they say, not necessarily what they say goes, but substituting them for the position of the Heavenly Father. Yeah, I don't know that the people thought of the Pharisees in that way, but I'm sure the Pharisees were starting to think of themselves in that way. What do you think? Should we call up all the local Catholic churches and go, you guys are violating the Bible? I mean, everybody in the whole church, worldwide, even the name Pope, right, comes from Papa in some way, right? What's going on, Philip? I'm not really sure either. I, I just think it's strange. It might be the wording of like NIV as well, but at least with the second statement with Father, that it's not a you shouldn't exalt yourself to some title. It's you shouldn't call other people this, even, which I mean is it's sort of different than like you are not to be called rabbi, nor are you to be called teacher, because then it, at least that can more clearly I can grasp that concept of, well, you shouldn't, you should be a servant. You shouldn't be exalting yourself. You should be humbling yourself. But instead, like, you're not even supposed to give any position or title to anyone else, even to the degree of father, which, yeah, is, I'm not sure. It's communism, right? Is that what he's advocating? <laughs> it's socialism, right? Morgan. He does have to tie into that final statement, forever exalts himself will be humbled, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Like, I've had professors here who, uh, in certain traditions, well, they say, just call me Rob, you know, just call me by my first name, like, don't, don't worry about the doctor thing, don't worry. And I've had other teachers are very adamant, like, there's the student-teacher separation sort of thing, but they see things like this and say, you know, like, just because I have a doctorate or just because I have, like, that's... It doesn't matter. You know, like, they actually have a theological reason. They're not just trying to do that. Like, so I don't know if that's necessarily right. I mean, but, but certainly one could look at something like this and say, yeah, you know, like, I actually want you to put aside my title because, because I take this stuff seriously. You know, like, so I don't think it's a – and it's not an attack on those who insist that I be called doctor or whatever, you know, but. Yeah, I mean, is he saying that you can't call your own father father? I don't think that's the intent, Right. So, I mean, you could look at this very literally and say, okay, nobody in here called me rabbi. Nobody in here called me teacher. Nobody in here called me father. Like, you could say that to each other and to everyone around. But I don't think that's exactly what he's saying. I think it's right. 
that he is getting it. I think Philip's point is pretty interesting that it shifts from don't have anybody call you this and you should not call anyone else and he uses father. Okay, now I don't think it's just the word father. I think it really does have to do with let's be careful. Probably the intent of it is if we start to elevate this kind of status among ourselves, we are prone to start to crave that kind of position. I think Jesus knows more than just about titles. He knows about human nature. He knows that inside, that temptation starts to grow when people constantly heap upon us some sort of status, even if we're not the ones who are seeking it. It's still something that can be dangerous. All right? It's a side point. His main point is still the end. You don't want to be exalting yourself. I mean, that's the point of being the humble servant. We've already seen his whole discussion with James and John, the sons of Zebedee, about the first and the last, and trying to say, I don't think you understand who's going to be first and who's going to be last. Philip. I understand that it seems his point is like the last two sentences, but it, it still seems strange to me and confusing why he uses the first three sentences um, and to, as points, because they seem a stretch in relation to what it is. Like, if he's using those as examples to say, well, you shouldn't use titles to exalt yourself or like be his positions, like in some way he could have, I don't know, I feel like it could have been much more clear, like don't use these titles to exalt people. I don't know why it's said in this way. Because these are the three that are used for religious leaders of the time. That's probably why. That's something that we're missing sitting here so many years later. So rabbi is clear to us. But teacher was pretty much expressly, res I mean, you could even hear in the Gospels, people would come to him and say, teacher, right? It wasn't just because he happened to be teaching that day. It's because it was a sign of that's, you are a religious teacher. Same thing with father. In the context in which he means it, in the way it was understood, they referred to their, the fathers of the faith, the way we kind of have that same kind of concept. But they were the exalted rabbis of the time, but I'm sorry, the exalted rabbis of the past the ones who had somehow survived and became these greater-than-life type of people. So they would refer to as your father, well, we know as your father Abraham, and said, we've heard that, but they would even use that of certain rabbis and teachers that had become a certain position. I think that's why they are there. In my mind, he's actually speaking to the Pharisees who crave these words. He's probably saying to them, like, I know probably in your heart someday you want to be called father whatever, because that means you've achieved that level of status that lives on long after you. And I also feel like Jesus has been called some of those himself. People have tried to come even when they tested him with these flattering words. Like, Rabbi, we know that you're a person who knows the law or teacher, right? They would start with these flattering words. And I think in a way, he's given it right back to them. Morgan. Yeah, I think Paul has something good to say. I mean, back from our retreat was at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and that idea of like where there are these divisions between men. And I think it clearly talks about just the fact that Christ is our ultimate teacher, you know, and like verse 20, so that no more boasting about men, all things are your, like our ultimate, we, we have this relationship with Christ that is supposed to trump any authority, period, you know, and so to not elevate or devalue any person, you know. I don't think this is an absolute prohibition on using titles of any kind, like going to your pastor and saying, I can't call you Pastor Jim or whatever it is anymore because, you know, that's just haughty. But I do think that we should at least think about it. Like, it's true that he's not denouncing 
something that hasn't even happened yet, like the fact that the Catholic Church uses father for all priests. But I think it's something that should give people pause. They should think through it. Does it become something that over time you start to own and start to actually make part of your identity more so than what your original identity should be? Do you start to think of yourself in that way? And we've seen throughout history that does tend to happen, even in the church. In fact, especially in the church. We've had so many abuses of power and position throughout the history of the church where the laity wasn't even given access to scriptures or couldn't do certain things. Or Even to this day, there are denominations where the laity can't pray certain prayers. You know, that only certain leaders can do that. Or only in some churches, like the one I grew up, like you had to be an elder to serve communion. Like normal people couldn't serve communion. So when we were up doing a junior high camp, we'd have to call for an elder to drive all the way up the mountain to serve communion. Like we start to like let those things become status. He's just pointing out the ultimate truth. Notice he's speaking to his disciples now as he's about to turn and pivot and then in a moment start blasting the Pharisees. Anything else on this? I just have a question. I might be off topic, but um, when he says we have one teacher, the Christ, I'm wondering if um, his disciples at that time knew that he was the Christ or if they had someone else in mind. Well, I would hope they knew at this point, although we've pointed out throughout the study of Matthew that they know, but they don't really fully get it. We've already had Peter making that declaration earlier than this. And others, he's in his last few parables, and as he goes forward, he's becoming less and less obscure about that. Um, I don't, I mean, we've even had the transfiguration event. So there's been a lot that's been going on. Um, but when you say, do they really know that? Like, I don't think that until he appeared to them, even at the, after the resurrection, I think they were still trying to digest it all, what it really meant. Uh, so... Yes and no would be the answer. All right, let's turn and blast some Pharisees. There's a pivot here from talking to the disciples, telling them don't be like those people, to actually speaking to those people directly. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Notice the title. You hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter who are trying to. He's blasting them for the very burdens that they're laying on people. While they themselves, he seems to intimate, they're not going to be able to get in. You'll see that in a second. So their actions, their burdens, the things have consequences that they're putting on. I'm going to point out that in some of your scriptures, you may have a verse 14 that adds another woe that seems to be borrowed from Mark or Luke. It says, Woe to you, teachers of the laws and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You devour widows' houses and for show make lengthy prayers. But actually, most people believe it wasn't included in Matthew's original because it's not found in the earliest manuscripts anywhere. So, just in case you have 14, it usually is in a margin note somewhere because it's probably not part of the original. So the NIV and others just don't even print it there. They just go from 13 to 15 and drop 14 into a margin note. So here's starting to go to 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. He's kind of letting it out there. Yeah. Yeah. That's why when I hear, I hear Christian radio, they're like, safe for the whole family. I just want to throw up all over my dash, you know? <laughs> Because the American Mr. Rogers Jesus was not related to the Aramaic speaking. 
Jesus in the woes in Matthew 23. Look at what he's saying here. You hypocrites, we know that theme. Hypocrites, by the way, could mean because of your insincerity in what you preach or just maybe your lack of actually following what you preach. It's probably both. It could be intentional. It could be even unwittingly. But for whatever reason, you are not following the things that you burden other people to follow. Here, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert. That convert word actually is the Greek for proselytizing. So they were trying to bring people into Judaism in the ways that they were doing. And he was extending this. You travel over land and sea showing this great effort. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. That, in, that, that son of hell language may not be as, as familiar to you because we don't see it very often. But he's really saying a person who belongs to hell. You know, because that will be the place that you'll go and you are there too. That's his indictment, pretty strong. No pulling of punches. Woe to you blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. What is he saying there? Why is he going through this lengthy thing saying you don't even know how to swear right? Yeah, question? Uh, about the, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert. Like, I don't know, I'm just wondering if you, if there's anything particular about that language, like a single convert, because I just find that interesting, because a lot of people have this idea of, well, if we can just win one person to Christ, then everything's worth it, and like, whatever money, whatever, you know, like, and so I don't know, I was just wondering if. He's clearly trying to contrast this immense effort with a colossal failure. So I think that's how he's setting up the language. When I looked at it, I was a little bit surprised because I thought, when did they ever cross land and sea for converts? I didn't think that was really what Judaism was about in the first century. Certainly it's not about that really much anymore. But I was trying to understand, like in the first century, they were trying to keep Gentiles out, right? They were trying to like mark everything was by like, we're the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like it's, it's, it's this thing. So why would they be able to do anything? So historically, there was effort made. Uh, to bring Gentiles into Judaism, especially those that were in the trade cities and mixing and all those kinds of things. So from that context, historically, some of them, not all of them, some of them were making efforts to do that. And obviously his condemnation is that if you succeed, you would actually make them just as much bad off as you are because of your practice. But the heart of your question really has to do with that thing about, like, if we just win one person, right? And I actually have always criticized that attitude because a lot of damage is done in the if we could just win one person, right? Um, I've heard people who say, but if just one person is saved, it would all be worth it. Yes, all things being equal, right? But if you repel 99 in trying to save that one, I think you should be responsible for the 99 that you repel. 
Uh, and I think we've made that point in previous series. For example, people who wear obnoxious T-shirts that say just obnoxious things, and you'll say, like, you know, like, like, I don't know, just like maybe like whatever. I don't want to say something obnoxious myself, but <laughs> but you know, like something that like you know, you walk up, you go, "What are you doing wearing a shirt like that?" And the response would be, "Well, if just one person comes to Christ because of it, it would all be worth it." Yeah, except that you are walking through a mall or an airport or whatever, and you're just repelling people left and right. So shouldn't you be responsible for those people as well? And there's a similar vein of what Jesus is kind of saying. That if this way that you've interpreted the law and you've laid these things on people, and on top of that, the hypocritical way that you've done it, and the way that you won't help them out of these binds, you've made the law such a burden that it's bringing people down. In this case, he's actually saying... (laughs) taking them to hell, right, because of what you've done, then you're not helping people by traveling over land and sea to make a convert. You're actually condemning those people by doing that. All right. Why is Jesus spending so much time in this woe talking about how people should swear? Yeah. I'm actually a little confused. Um, I know he's, he's making a point, but earlier he said, do not swear, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Yeah, Mark. Totally right. That means that we have a little bit of thinking to do here. So if before, as you point out in Matthew 5.33, and goes on, he goes, you've heard it said to people long ago, do not break your oath, keep your oaths, but I tell you, do not swear at all. Notice the parallel here. Either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king, and do not swear on your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So if he is against that kind of oath and swearing and is saying just be truthful and let people know you by your truthfulness, it's curious that he's giving them an instruction about how it is that they don't even understand how to swear back and forth. And he even uses that same language about the throne and all that kind of stuff comes into it here at the end. Like anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne, which should immediately make us think of the passage in Matthew 5. Yeah, I don't see any problem with it in the sense that I don't think he's telling people to swear or not to swear here. But what he's correcting is the fact that they don't even understand sacredness or holiness. Like they're, And we do this all the time, right? Like we usually love God's gifts more than God himself. That's, that's the key. So what don't they get? Let's assume that they are going to swear. What are they getting wrong in their oath giving? Right, they're swearing on the gift. They're swearing on the thing instead of the one that makes it good or, or the thing that makes it good. Like Yeah, I mean, they're swearing by the gold instead of the temple, right? Or they're swearing by the gift instead of the altar. Now, he's probably would say, as he already has, don't swear at all. But what he's pointing out is even the way in which you swear is just downright stupid. It doesn't follow. In other words, you're making a distinction without meaning. And if you really thought through it, you would see that it doesn't follow. I mean, he says, what's going to be more sacred? What's greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? So he's clearly showing that. So I think the way to resolve these two pieces, and Mark's right to bring it back, is not that he's saying, you guys are doing it all wrong, let me show you how to do it. He's saying, you guys have made this ridiculous distinction, which just shows what you are spending your time on. You've missed the greater aspects. First of all, you shouldn't do this at all. But this is an instruction that he's giving to his disciples to elevate the standard. Remember, he's saying, you've heard it said before, but now I tell you. He's giving new instruction to the disciples, not saying it was always this way. 
He's saying, I want you to reach for a higher standard, and this is the way it should be. But he's criticizing them for missing that point entirely about that's what you're spending your time making laws about? The distinction between the swearing on the gold or the temple itself? Like, that's what we have laws and all this tradition that we're building up and all the things that you have to spend time as teachers and lawyers of the law trying to figure out these things? It ties in very carefully with where he goes next. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. What are they doing tithing? Isn't that the Old Testament standard, tithing? I mean, they're not doing anything wrong by tithing. But again, he's pointing out the level to which they've missed the point. Why talk about tithing spices like mint, dill, and cumin? Because what he's saying is, you guys are following the rigidity of the law down to the tithe into the smallest things. So you guys are showing everybody how to tithe even spice. So you receive spice, you tithe some of that, the smallest thing. You're tithing. But you're neglecting the greater things. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. Where are those in your standard? And I think that actually is one we should sit under as well. Like I think that we've really, as some people would say, we've majored in the minor things. We're very good about getting certain things right and kind of squaring everything off and missing some of the larger things. And I am like the first in line on this. Like I struggle in my own life because I want to get everything right before I really get going to what I'm supposed to be doing. You know what? That always reminds me of like trying to get the plane off the runway. If I just have enough runway, I'll eventually get it off, you know? But I think I might run out of runway here. Because I don't know when the end of my runway is, and I don't know how much time I have, but I'm always thinking about the, the like, okay, I got to get this thing done, and when I finish this, when I finish this, and I can finally get going on those other goals. And so I'm not being obtuse. I've even been struggling this in my own life. And you know how much I talk about money and giving. But in my own life, I'm struggling with this about money and giving. Because there's just more that I need to be doing in certain areas of my life about money and giving. And I'm not doing them. And I keep thinking, well, when I finish this, and when I do that, and I'm ignoring it. For you, it might be somewhere else. For the Pharisees, it was these greater issues. Like while you're worried about what you're tithing in these little areas, or why you're worried about like, things like who you should swear by the gold of the temple and debating those things, you're missing the heart of the law. The weightier matters. These are the things you should have focused on. But notice, without neglecting the former. But if you had to pick one, I know which one you would have picked. You're missing the whole point. What is this stuff about strain out a gnat and swallow a camel? The imagery here is straining out a gnat, like maybe out of a drink or something. Like you see a gnat going, you ever try to get one, like when it goes in? You know, and then you're wondering after a while as you're digging all the way in, like what's dirtier than that or your finger or like, you know? Yeah, probably. But you're swallowing a camel. It's an Aramaic play on words, by the way. Camel is jemla or jemma. And gnat is jelma. So he's actually not only picking a very, very small thing that we strain out, 
while giving this imagery of swallowing this really, really large thing. But he's actually making a play on words that we miss unless we look into the Aramaic that's behind the language. And then you see that he's really trying to set this up that you're missing the whole point. Again. You end up swallowing a camel while you're straining out a gnat. That's the comparison that he has to faithfulness and justice and mercy compared to tithing just your spices to show that you've done everything according to the law. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. What's he saying? Again, is they just not know how to do the dishes? He's criticizing ritual practice that misses the very point. And he's doing it metaphorically here. He said this, that it's really not the things that are on the outside that make us not clean. Remember, it's the things that come from the inside. And here he's trying to make the same point, but using this ritual cleanliness concept. That's what you need to worry about. You clean the inside first, and you can worry about the outside. But they spent so much time in ritual cleanliness ordinances, and they missed the whole point that really, as Jesus would say, what defiles a person comes from the inside, comes from their heart, not from this ritual cleansing. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Another inside-outside pairing between this woe and the last one. Yeah. Well, it might be too zoomed out of a perspective, but I struggle with understanding, like, Jesus wanting to save everyone, like, coming down so hard against the Pharisees, and why it's okay for him to be so somewhat merciless in his criticisms of them. Anyone want to answer that question? It's a good question. Yeah. Again, I don't know the exact reference to it, but, like, it talks about, like, the teachers leading people astray, like better for like a millstone to be hung around their neck. And, um, but I mean, it's the Pharisees being teachers, and it's talking about, even this previous reference about, they're leading people in the wrong direction. And so like they're held to a higher standard. I don't know, I could see Jesus at least feeling like the Pharisees generally are pulling people away from, pulling the people he cares about, like away from what is good. Okay, anyone else? I think it could be seen as an act of kindness because they're destroying themselves and others with them. And he's telling them, this is not the right way, this is the right way. And so I think sometimes coming down hard on people is really caring about them, like it's really what is best for them and it's really serving them. Like he's serving the poor in different ways but maybe the way they need to be served is to be told, no, you're wrong. This is destructive and it's damning. Okay. I think that I agree like, more with Megan that 
is seeming like relatively merciless on the Pharisees, especially because like before Jesus came, like this is the way that it had been done. And it wasn't until like one man decided to like shake things up that, you know, very hard for them to be able to decipher. And I think that they have they had it really, really hard because um, they're following these like deep set convictions that they have and what they're doing is right and what they're doing is the way that it's supposed to be done and then Jesus is challenging them. So I think it's a, it's a little bit hard. I think it's also specifically difficult in terms of like where we come in with like missions mindedness because in my opinion, Jesus didn't establish necessarily like his credibility with the Pharisees in the sense that like he didn't go and live among them and try to like win them to like his way by like living with them and being with them and things like that. So what is that to say of our missions? Like are there people that we should be going into and just laying down the law? Because I don't feel like that's right. But I feel like in a sense that's what Jesus is doing here. He is, and I'm gonna reserve my comments for just a moment and press forward because I think we're gonna see part of the answer unveiled in the next couple of scriptures, but not all of it. But at least it'll help us, so those are good comments. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. Part of the answer to the question is in there. What is he woeing them this time about? What is this idea of decorating tombs of the prophets? What had happened throughout most of the history of Israel that Jesus has already condemned people for with the prophets? Anyone know what was going on? They would kill them. They didn't listen to them. They rejected them. They turned them out. They chased them down. They hunted them. And, and many of them were killed. Later, people would think back and go, I think that person probably was a prophet. And they would seek to erect monuments or decorate their tombs and kind of heap a little bit of this idea on themselves of saying, if we had lived in those days of our forefathers, we wouldn't have taken part in killing them. We would have known better. Well, he's first indicting them by saying, so you admit that you are the descendants of murderers. Okay, another harsh statement meant to wake them up to really pay attention to what he's saying. But what's the irony of the statement here? They're going to murder him. They're plotting to kill him even as he speaks these words to him. And that may be one of the reasons that he's being so harsh with them is because these are the leaders of Israel. They're the ones that should recognize God in their midst. That's the statement that really is coming out in many of these woes. You decorate tombs and say, if we had lived in those days, what's the irony? You're living in them right now. And you're going to do the exact same thing again. You are the descendant of murderers. And guess what? You're going to murder again. This time, it's not just the prophets, but it's God himself. Where do I get that stuff from? He just finished telling them a parable about the tenants in the vineyard. Remember how they beat the earlier ones and then finally he says, I'll send my son and they kill the son. And the Pharisees were listening to it going, he's talking about us, right? There wasn't much interpretation in that parable. And here he's saying it to them directly. You guys always say we would have done it differently. Here's your chance. Guess what you're going to do? You're going to do it no differently. That's one of the reasons he is being so harsh. Yes, they are leaders. They're supposed to know better. They're the ones who are learned. They're the ones who are supposed to know what's going on in the law. 
Remember elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus says, you should have recognized me. Why? Because Moses wrote about me. You're the ones that look at those scriptures. You don't believe Moses because you don't believe me. He testified about me. Good times paraphrase there. You should know better. That's why this judgment is being heaped on you. Look at that last sentence. Fill up the measure of the sin of your forefathers. Like with the measure that you kind of heap on yourself is the same measure that should be heaped on them. And you admit that they were murderers. Guess what? Use that same measuring cup to fill up what you should get. It's the same deal. Yeah. I still agree. It's still difficult, though, to reconcile with a lot of the the rest of like Jesus' teachings, like loving your enemies, even like just simply like that you can we can maybe justify saying, yeah, the Pharisees deserve to be woed and like humiliated and like said how terrible they are. Maybe they deserve that, but that doesn't fit with Jesus' like loving thing. Like I think Brittany's point is like really interesting that that really this is what was best for them that they needed to hear this because I mean we I think. Most people would agree that at some point, most people who are living wrongly, like the best thing to do in loving them, is just call them on it, and like, you need to address this issue. Like, and so I don't, because I, I feel like if we take that out and just say, like, no, it's not for any benefit of the Pharisees. It's just because Jesus says, no, you should know better. So it just seems very, I don't know, it doesn't fit. It's not one or the other. And notice, I have not taken out that comment that it's for their own good. I actually think it is in part for their own good but it is actually greater for the good of the people whom they've led astray. So your earlier comment about having a millstone tied around your neck is actually closer. Where do I get that from? Look how he closes. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? If I hadn't been clear, there it is one more time, you know. <laughs> Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechai, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. More condemnation, more heaping of blame, but then there's this weird part that comes in right here. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together. As a hen gathers her chick under her wings. But you are not willing. Let's stop there for a moment before I read the end part. Do you feel the lament in that last part? Now, is he just lamenting the city? Does he just love the buildings? Jerusalem stands for the leadership of Israel here. It's the context in which he's speaking. It would make no sense to suddenly get all nostalgic about the city itself. And it was frequently used in that way. That the leadership of Israel was signified by Jerusalem itself. There's this feminine imagery here of a hen gathering her chicks. There's this lament that comes from a deep place. Jesus is not just coming out in a righteous anger against those who've done all these things. 
But he's also lamenting that it has even happened at all. I've longed to gather your children together, like all the people as well. I've longed for that, but you were not willing. You resisted. And the you is talking to the leadership again who prevented this from taking place. I think that's the place that leads to a lot of this. That there is a lovingness maybe to them in the way that he's pronouncing this as clearly as possible. It's also telling them what's about to happen and showing them that despite all their laments about the past, they're going to do the very same thing with the very Son of God. But he's lamenting also the people who are prevented from coming to God because of all these things that they've done. It's all of it together. He says, look, your house is left to you desolate. It's a very significant statement that Jesus makes. Matthew records it at the very end of this long discussion. Your house is left to you desolate. I want you to imagine the scene in your mind for a moment that Jesus has been in the temple courts woeing the Pharisees and saying all these statements loud. And he makes this statement probably as he's leaving the temple. He's making a very profound statement. Your house is left to you desolate. Desolate meaning empty. Empty of what? Empty of God's presence. I mean, he's basically signifying in his statement, look, I'm leaving. God has left the house. That's a very strong statement at the end. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's certain to get him put on trial. That's certain to push him to the point where now they feel like this guy is not just trouble. This guy is not just causing us, you know, overturning the tables in the temple or challenging our authority or saying all these things or working on the Sabbath. This guy is equating himself with God. And this guy is telling us that, look, God is leaving the house. Elvis has left the building what he's saying and it's a condemnation on the temple itself in a way like this place is desolate it's empty God no longer resides here if you think of what the temple in Jerusalem meant to the Jews it was the place where God met his people you could say it was where heaven and earth kind of touched each other that was the place of meeting that kind of was the same parallels the tent of meeting that they had as they wandered through the desert where God met with Moses, whoever was the appointed person. And he's saying, that's over. The building is desolate. God no longer resides here. And of course, in a few days, as he goes forward to the crucifixion and the resurrection, our theology says that there is a new way of approaching God directly. And the temple is no longer there. 30 or 40 years later, the temple literally won't be there anymore, as it's destroyed at the beginning of the diaspora. So... You've got a lot of meaning wrapped up in the end paragraph. Yeah. The question on something a little bit different in the beginning. It says, therefore, I'm sending you prophets. Like, what prophets is he referring to? Yeah, that's been an interpretive question for a lot of people. Some people say that he's actually talking past tense, like I've sent you. But most people like to interpret it in a future sense. Like the people who come, basically, in an inauguration of the church are going to come and still try to do something here. 
And of course, we know the church begins in Jerusalem and some people come over. Uh, you might think, well, none of them came over, but our greatest theologian came over. Paul was one of them and came over. So we don't know who else came over. Some people say like Nicodemus was probably one of the people that Jesus spoke to who was part of the Sanhedrin who also came over and other people. So, but you're going to do all these things. Now, if you take a later dating of when Matthew is written, some of these things have already taken place. So some people think Matthew includes that to make sure that people see that Jesus was saying these things and they're already starting to happen as the troubles begin in the church and the persecution starts to happen, right? By this time, that's probably well known to Matthew as he assembles some of this material and puts it together. But that's what most people believe he's talking about. When I first read it, I thought, yeah, he's lapsing into that same past tense about the prophets in the past. But he's really talking to them kind of in a future sense. So, Megan, did we answer your question or no? You know, I think the, the way I would, I would just try one more time on that is... I don't know when we say, like, that doesn't comport with the Jesus that we've seen throughout Scripture. Like, as we've walked through Matthew, Jesus has said a lot of pretty tough things. I don't remember a lot of the places where he said the things that we think about, even I think about, when I think of, like, who Jesus is. I think that's the reason we did this series. It's the reason that we spent all these weeks in Matthew. It's because I think we have an idea of who God is. Maybe he comes from the sermons we've heard. Maybe he comes from the parts of scriptures we want to read. And so reading about who Jesus is from one page to the end of a gospel that's written about him, I think has very surprising things in it. There are a number of things we've seen in this gospel. Like, why does he just come out and tell them the answer? Why is it so obscure? Why is he saying these things are so hard to deal with? I think he was very straightforward with people and said very like, unpopular things at times. And maybe this was one of those examples, but yeah. I just feel like I wanted to add that like, just because justice and discipline is present doesn't mean that it's devoid of love. So just because God's not always going around like care bears and rainbows and like, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't a kumbaya sash, but that doesn't mean that it, it was devoid of love. And like, I actually feel the opposite. Like I take comfort in the fact that he's going after wickedness and that God loves us enough to say I'm not going to let you take down these kids away from me. I'm tired of it. It's what you're doing. You're like you're destroying the kingdom. You are keeping people from me. Like, this has to stop. So just because he goes after that doesn't mean that it's devoid of love. And clearly, like, it saddened him. And that comes from love. Like, I love you, and I'm sad that you're like this. But this is how you are. So this is how it is. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> Look, I don't remember any part of Matthew that was Care Bears and Rainbows. Um, <laughs> And I think that's one of the reasons we went through it. Uh, because I think a lot of us remember more Care Bears and Rainbows. And I'm not saying that God isn't caring. What I'm saying is that when we see the portrait of him that's actually painted in the book of Matthew, uh, we see a lot more aspects of his towing the line, of his justice, of his strong teachings, of the, 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 like the levels of discipleship and the things that he puts up for people are high bar. Uh, and they are a big calling that we have to take seriously. Like he lays it down numerous times. So maybe that's part of it. You know, I was going to bring in today like a pop quiz on Matthew and just ask questions on the tough passages we've covered. <laughs> and uh, I, I think the reason is because I know that even I've forgotten the answers to things and I'm the one who's looking them up. Because it's hard to maintain this amount of information in your head, especially as much as we've done. But you know what my encouragement's going to be. 
you need to go back and listen to it. You need to go back and digest it again because things go into long-term memory when they're heard through repetition and when you go, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Otherwise, what's the point? Well, something else I was just thinking about in, in the idea of like, kind of a verbal attack that Jesus makes oftentimes. And it's kind of interesting, even like in Revelation, some of the imagery is like a sword comes out of the mouth. It's not like necessarily like this physical violent thing, but it, so I don't know. I just think that's kind of an interesting imagery. The sword comes out of the mouth as well as just so really often through the Bible, Old Testament and New, there's a strong emphasis on the power of words. And like there's power with that and that they do hold like life or death. And so I, I don't think that really is an answer for anything, but it's just something I was thinking about that I think is kind of interesting. Yeah, what we just read about today is a pretty powerful thing. You know, we always think of Jesus as the one, like we've talked about, that's coming to just spread love and good news and general hippie attitudes, right? But in this case, this was God coming to the temple to actually have a discourse with the people who have not only been kind of trying to trip him up, but have certainly tripped up the people that he loves and have led the nation in his mind astray from what the original point was supposed to be. Uh, this was his day to come. He's literally cleaned house earlier at the temple, and this way he's actually, in a teaching way, kind of cleaning house. And I don't think that last point of him leaving the temple can be overemphasized of saying your house, as in some translations, this house is now a house of desolation, it says. Like, I just think that's just such an awesome thing to think about it from that standpoint that God is leaving the building and slamming the door on it and saying, like, in a few days is all over and I'm not coming back here. And they might just think, good, you know, but they're not understanding. I mean, maybe they do understand. They're just going to condemn him for it, but they're not getting it. Like, God is not coming back. That's... That's strong, at least to the temple. Let's pray together and thank God for this series. God, thank you that we have a place to meet. Thank you that we have copies of the scriptures. Thank you, Lord, that we have just the time, the privilege of just being in a place where we have enough to eat, enough to drink, that we're relatively safe and secure, that we have the luxury of spending time studying your word. Do not let us take that for granted or any of the things that allow us to have this luxury. Lord, let the words settle in that we've had. And I pray, Lord, that you would prompt us to continue to come back to the wealth of information that's in this book. Thank you for giving us just the patience and the time to go through this whole thing. But Lord, I know along the way we've learned some things that have shaped us. Do not let those things be fleeting from our mind or from our heart. Lord, knowledge by itself is not enough. We want to be changed and we want to become more like you and to be disciples. And Lord, for some of us that means obedience. For some of us that means faith. For some of us that means letting go of striving on the outside and letting you work on the inside. Whatever our issue is, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, may you work that in us. We pray this in your name. Amen.